0: Many of you know who Pete Townsend is, a songwriter for The Who, but for over 50 years, the band has been widely one of the most influential rock bands in the world, selling over 100 million albums. Curious about an interview that he had in New York Times about his life accomplishments about the band, and he was honest about the work and the importance of the work, or you might even say lack of importance of the work. Uh, This is what he said. He said, the massive question was, who are we? What is our function? What is our worth? Are we disenfranchised, or are we able to take society over and guide it? Are we against the establishment? Are we being used by it? Are we artists, or are we entertainers? And Townsend admitted that uh, they don't have the answers to the generations that they have played to. And uh, he went on to say, rock and roll was a celebration of congregation, a celebration of irresponsibility, but we don't have the brains to answer the question of what it was that rock and roll tried to start and has failed to finish. What we were hoping to do was to create a system by which we gathered in order to hear music that in some ways served the spiritual needs of the audience. It didn't work out that way. And then listen to what he says. We abandon our parents' church and we haven't replaced it with anything solid and substantial. This sermon is not about the history of rock and roll, but it, it, it really creates some grief to know that, you know, you are working, you know, and they're a good band, right? Uh, but you work your whole life for something and then it's like, for what? Uh, your life's work comes to this realization. You know, maybe you build houses, maybe you sell widgets, um, you uh, service computers, and all of that has proximate meaning. But when it comes to having influence, transforming lives, hearts, we need something more. Now, I think we're designed that way. Our lives need a a purpose and a power greater than ourselves, greater than our vocation. I think Peter taps into this. I think he puts a laser focus on what it is that creates this importance. Now, it would be a mistake to look at this book and forget the context. You might remember that this is written to a group of people that have been persecuted, not just light persecution, but but physical and deadly kind of persecution. And Peter doesn't provide platitudes like, oh, well, now listen, don't worry about it. It's gonna get better. You know, no, it's, it's none of that. He instead points them to this real and effective hope. They are to remember their salvation, the benefits of heaven that God has promised to them. Now, I have to admit, now maybe you grew up in a church like this. that, And, and I, I had a wonderful church, wonderful people and all. And you grow up in a lot of churches where it's a salvation message every week. Now, nothing wrong with that in and of itself, but the people of God need to grow. They need to grow through the teaching of the, of the Word of God. And what happens with that is sometimes you can get ho-hum about salvation. And you think, oh, it's not another salvation message right and that's unfortunate and i have to admit that uh, there was a period of time where my heart kind of grew into that but i think what god is wanting us to do is to recapture the glory of the salvation message and of what it's meant for us and particularly what it means now with all else that we're going through the the way that helps us to focus on the things that really matter So, um, with this perspective, we have to lean into something that is objective, that's supernatural, and that is outside ourselves. And what we see is Peter kind of hitting on these two things within this passage. And so he writes to look to the prophets, look to the apostles. And even look to angels for this. Let's take a look at this. Let's all stand as we take a look at our passage. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. And the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Let's pray. Father, calm our hearts. Many of us are thinking about a game that's going to take place in a couple hours. But as fun as that is, we realize that there are things that are far more important. We realize the incredible value in the present day of our salvation. fruit that comes from heaven would you help us to know that this hope that we have is not empty not just faith upon faith something that you've allowed us to get Our heads around, our arms around, and our hearts can explode with a passion for this glorious salvation. Do a work in each of us. I thank you for these, my brothers and sisters, who value your word. What a delight it is to be their pastor. Lord, what a tremendous honor it is to be at this church and to see what you're doing. And we, we say these things not to pat ourselves on the back, but to give you glory, to say how great you are. You could insert another man to come in here and pastor, other people to come, and you'd do a great work. We know it's not about us. You deserve the praise and honor. So we thank you for your good work. And we want to continue to be used, to continue to be a lighthouse, that our lives count, that whatever vocation my brothers and sisters have, that they would know that whether it's a a stay-at-home mom, cutting hair, working on computers, a lawyer, whatever it is, their life counts, their labor counts, their testimony counts, and that you're using them. And so we thank you for reminding us of this. Thank you for the focus of 1 Peter. We love you. Welcome the movement of your Holy Spirit here this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people set in agreement. You may be seated. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. So, what Peter is doing is he's shining a light upon this salvation and he's trying to say why it's so exceptional. It was the topic of the Old Testament prophets even though they didn't understand all of the details. They knew that salvation was woven throughout the history of God's people, Israel. But like putting the topic under a microscope, the prophets searched. They inquired about it, and particularly the specifics of the Messiah. The prophets spoke for God. Let's not complicate the definition. They spoke for God. Uh, From Moses to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament. These um, writers and preachers focused on the salvation and the Messiah. Now they did this either via metaphor or directly. It says they searched and inquired carefully. kind of a drawing a line between the prophecy and the person and the work of Christ. Now these prophets, despite what some may think, they were not wild-eyed fanatics who upon the first intuition assumed that God was speaking to them. We've all seen this happen, right? I mean, they, they ask questions. They ask tough questions. They were inquisitive. They weren't dopes, just writing down impressions and and passions as if assuming they were all divine. They didn't make that assumption. They tried to read the fine print. You know, one lady actually won $10,000 doing that. St. Petersburg-based company called Square Mouth. He had the instructions for claiming the prize in a document for every travel insurance policy it sold. They thought it very unlikely that anybody would read the section, pays to read on page seven of the nearly 4,000 word document. What they didn't count on was a school teacher, Donalyn Andrews. She was a nerd, right? She made it a practice to read all of the fine print. She printed out the policy, soon came across a section that said, this is a contest that rewards the individual who reads their policy information from start to finish. If you're the first to contact us, you may be awarded the Pays to Read contest grand prize of $10,000. She wrote the company immediately, got a call back and said, you get 10 grand. The uh, company estimates that only about 1% Read the fine print. We know this to be true by how many open up our e-bulletins in the middle of the week. (laughs) That's a little above one percent, but you know. The point is the prophets had this meticulous tenacity like the one percent. They did all they could to kind of figure these things out. Second Peter addresses again this idea of inspiration. And what I want you to know, it's really not a tension, it's just you have the, the divine inspiration and then the objective natural world realities that God gives to both of us. It's one thing, for a religion to claim they have divine revelation, everyone does. That's a religion. It's another thing to relate it to natural world realities. In fact, that's one of the things I think really shines about Christianity. But with, with that aside, Second Peter says this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and a voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. I remember Peter writing. Where did those words come from? The transfiguration that Peter was at. We ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word, more fully confirmed to which you'll do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. There were eyewitnesses of the transfiguration and Peter was obviously there. Yet he says there's something even more confirming. Now, some say here in this passage, is actually saying the, the experience confirmed the prof- uh, prophecy. But the way it's written, it's almost as if Peter is saying there's something even more sure than the eyewitness testimony. And you know what that is? The prophecy itself, the word of God. I can take it to the bank that this is going to happen because God said it. I may see something, experience something, but I could be wrong about what I experience. How many of us have been in an argument you know, with a spouse, and you know, you got two different things that are being said, and it's like, are we even talking about the same thing? An hour later, you don't know what you're arguing about. The, the, the point is, is that our experiences and how we view things can be so different even eyewitness testimony. But Peter is saying there's something more sure, the Word of God. When it comes to man's experience in the Word of God, the Word of God is to be taken as superior in truth. Now, that doesn't negate the need or importance of you know, kind of natural world, objective evidence and experiences. It's merely saying it is inferior to the Word of God. God uses both the divine and the natural world, objective, factual stuff to appeal to men. And this passage says that men were carried along. It's a mariner's term that refers to the wind in a sail, carried along like the wind in a sail to record scripture. That's the inspiration. So the point is, there is both human and divine activity in the mix. God is not using men as some kind of, you know, empty-headed secretaries. Just That doesn't mean all secretaries are empty-headed, but in this case, empty-headed secretaries, just dictating, okay? But instead, moving them along so that what is recorded is prophetic utterance. Divine and natural world, working in concert together. First John confirms this. Giving the importance of the natural world stuff, when he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, testified to it, proclaim it to you, the eternal life. You know, we got the message, which was with the Father, was made manifest to us. John was so impressed by Jesus, so impressed, convinced of the truthfulness of the gospel and of God bringing new life to forgive us of sin, that he testifies and proclaims of this truth. John says, I not only saw Jesus, but I understood what I was looking at, at least mostly. Not everything, not every detail. I not only heard Jesus, but I understood what I heard. I not only touched Jesus, but I Realized with careful examination some of what it meant. My eyes, my ears, my fingers all affirmed the reality of the physical and spiritual nature of Jesus. Doesn't mean he understood every nuance, but that what he was observing was actual, discerning observations. It wasn't an optical illusion. It wasn't a hallucination. And the reaction to this wasn't, oh, well, that's interesting. That'll go great as a footnote in my new book. No. John and the apostles contemplated what they witnessed, and it says they were in awe of the spectacle. brothers and sisters, our faith is something more than wishful thinking, more than a blind leap. We have both the divine activity, revelation of God, supernatural miracles that confirm that, and then real-world observations, which I am so thankful that God provides. Our faith is not disconnected from the facts. It's not an existential leap away from facts. It's not purely a subjective, personal thing. If that were the case, why do we even bother with Jesus and the Bible? Believe whatever you want. If you have a subjective experience with it, do your thing. It doesn't matter. That's not what he's saying. This nonsensical approach does not work in every area of life, right? There have to be objective realities. In order for you to stay married to your spouse, you have to trust him or her and know that that trust is built upon real knowledge that is built upon real facts. If my spouse tries to shoot me, Okay, now maybe I could forgive an accidental shot, but continual shooting, <laughs> I would be prone to lose trust, <laughs> have good cause to sever the relationship. <laughs> if I found notes from another man around the house, flowers, another man's clothing in our bedroom. I saw my wife meeting with another man, heard her making secretive phone calls or getting secretive texts. Trust would vanish. And again, there would be facts to doubt the strength of the relationship. Listen, I don't trust my wife just because I want to or I need to I trust my wife because the facts have shown she is indeed a trustworthy person. She has, in fact, the kind of character worthy of trust. She has proven over time that my love for her is not a lost cause. It's really her that would have the problem with me that would be more of the issue. (laughs) I mean... I'm just amazed of the grace. I mean, it, it really is a, is, is a cause for celebration. Be glad that somebody loves your pastor, okay? <laughs> My point, friends, is that faith in Jesus Christ is corroborated with hard, physical evidence and that evidence you know what it points to a real man named Jesus Christ who died a real death and rose from a real grave he is worthy of our trust by the way corroborated by hundreds of eyewitnesses recorded by historians see I think what the prophets are doing they're trying to build this trust. We benefit from that. Verse 11, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So verse 11 tells us they were inquiring about salvation. And they weren't curious particularly about the time and exact identification of Jesus centuries before he came. Inquiring means to examine and investigate. In other words, they were concerned about every detail that they wrote, not for scholarly research, but with a passion about how their dreams and and hopes would be fulfilled. There's something here that I have never really seen before. I mean, I've read it, but it dawned on me this week of the connection when he says, the Spirit of Christ. In other words, the the prophets were motivated by the Spirit of Christ writing about Christ. This is an absolutely amazing truth. Especially in view of how the Old Testament gets attacked about, you know, it, it, it being this um, body of of, of uh, well, people don't see it as truth or even scripture; they just see it of writings that we should just no longer be a part of because it's way too harsh. But this says the Spirit inspired prophets. Now first we could say this, that salvation was not invented by men, but by God, by the Spirit of Christ, because this is what they wrote about. And the pre-existence of Christ is confirmed by this Trinitarian participation in the plan of God. The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ are essentially synonymous as they participate in the inspiration of the prophets, and the deliverance of this message, but people knock the Old Testament, say it shouldn't be accepted. You know, the New Testament is all lovey-dovey; the Old Testament is just judgment. But this is a caricature that's erroneous because the Old Testament and New Testament both have grace and salvation, as well as God's judgment upon mankind because of sin. Both. Testaments, attempts to dismiss this don't understand the unity of the Scripture. But here's, I think, the important point that I think previously I've missed. The Spirit of Christ was involved in the Old Testament. Think of this. Jesus was inspiring the Old Testament writers that people want to condemn, Now, this goes to, because what I've heard people say is, all we need is Jesus. All we need are the words of Jesus. All we need to have attitudes like Jesus, forget about this Old Testament stuff. Wait, 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 wait. Jesus was involved in writing the Old Testament. Jesus was inspiring the Old Testament writers. He led the prophets to say and write what they said and wrote. He was as involved in the Old Testament as he was in the New Testament. In the Old, he worked via his Spirit in the New through his presence. So he was involved in the Old Testament prophets, in the New Testament fulfillment, and in the glories to follow. It was the Spirit of Christ who inspired the psalmist to write a precursor to the cross, centuries before, when the psalmist said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? The words of Jesus. It was the spirit of Christ that led Isaiah to write how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of salvation, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. And again, he was despised and rejected of men. Again, Christ inspired them to write this, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he was, has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Oh, I've heard people criticize the, Old Testament is way too bloody. The sacrifice of Jesus is all about blood, way too violent. No, we're just for kumbaya, love Jesus, oprify it. That's what the modern man says. Surely he's borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was Christ who led Daniel with a vision that marked the triumphal entry to the very day, centuries before it took place. Christ is the one who gave him that prophecy. It was the spirit of Christ that spoke of the resurrection in the Psalms. Centuries before it actually took place. We see the connections made between the Old Testament and New Testament. We see the connections made between Christ and the prophecies. Now, I want you to get this. There's a connection made between all of that And you want to know what the thread is that connects us? You may not like the answer. Sufferings. In the searching of the Old Testament prophets, they discovered that Jesus would suffer and glory would follow. And my friends, it's a similar pattern for us today. But this is what Peter wrote to encourage those who are being persecuted, and it's what the prophets were writing about that we could be encouraged. Paul wrote, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. These glories, Paul talks about some of the benefits. We, we, we gain character, knowledge of Christ. We grow in intimacy with Christ. We depend less upon self. Constant prayer should be, Lord, more of you, less of me. We realize the power of the resurrection in enduring sufferings. We realize the power of the resurrection raising a new life after death. To be redundant, we could say, glory is indeed glorious. The psalmist wrote, therefore my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. You will not abandon my soul to shield or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You get a taste of that? psalmists going through, people trying to kill him, all the things that he went through. And yet, there's great glory. It's what keeps gas in the engine. Oh, you've heard the saying that you become so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. You're to be so heavenly minded that it fuels your life here on earth. Don't think it's you know, just disconnected, it's up there and makes no difference. These realities come into focus and become more meaningful because of suffering. And the glory of salvation especially rises to its true inestimable value in suffering. It's something nobody can ever touch. Remember what Peter said? Undefiled. Imperishable. The worst things could go on. You could suffer terribly. Our country could suffer terribly. Your family could suffer terribly. And yet God has these things of salvation and heavenly reward kept safe. I mean, you read about the heroes of the faith in in Hebrews eleven. You know, he talked about heads getting chopped off and terrible persecution, and what kept him going. You remember what it was? This is not their home. This is not your land. This is not your future. You're aliens. That's not to say we can't make our community as great as we can make it. Not to say we don't love people around us. We don't try to make change. It's just to say all this is done with a heavenly perspective. In so doing, realize where the real fruit resides, the real reward resides. and what can't be touched by whatever becomes in your life here on earth. that is glorious. I like what John Piper said in this regard. He said there are two kinds of magnifying, microscope magnifying, telescope magnifying. The one makes a small thing look bigger than it is. The other makes a big thing begin to look as big as it really is. When David says, I will magnify God with thanksgiving, he does not mean I will make a small God look bigger than he is. He means I will make a big God begin to look as big as he really is. My friends, we are not called to be microscopes. We are called to be telescopes. Christians are not called to be con men who magnify their product out of proportion to reality. There's nothing and nobody superior to God. Nobody is more deserving of glory than him. The prophets told us about this. Christ demonstrated it and we are getting to taste it. How can we not give him glory? How can we not share our testimony with others? Peter said in, second, in, in 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's be a telescope. We got a lot to look at, don't we? Wow. You know what helps me focus? Hmm. Had this relational issue. Whoa. Didn't see that before, God. Wow, I had this physical malady. What? Our country's going through all kinds of contortions. Wow. Look how great you are in setting up your kingdom, God. It all, as we look to him, as we look to the heavens, we see his glory. Let's pray.